Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fan Fuel, the podcast where fans feel talk about motorsports. In this episode, we'll be talking about this weekend's action during the doubleheader weekend that we had for Memorial Day. And one of our very own had a doubleheader himself on the actual day of Memorial Day. So, Nathan, um, you kind of want to talk about what you did on Monday? I know you did not one, but two single-person endurance kart races. Yeah, so I'm at a, I am live near a track called Bushnell Motorsports Park. It's uh, really similar to GoPro Motorplex. It's a nice place. It's kind of in a rural area, but it's definitely worth the two-hour drive for me. So they were hosting these endurance races that were single-person races for um, three – there were three different events. There was a 9 o'clock, a 12 o'clock, and a 3 o'clock race. And I ended up entering the 12 o'clock and the 3 o'clock races. The first one was 50 laps. It was – there's no practice, no qualifying. It's three. You have to run two pit stops and two card swaps. So technically you run three carts. Um, you get weight ballast according to your weight, and you have to transfer that in between each pit stop. The stops are timed out to 40 seconds. So you can't gain or lose time in the pits. It's all about really how you enter and exit the pits that makes the time difference. And both the races ended up being really clean compared to, say, the league nights where they're a lot dirtier drivers i think i was only one of the i was only one of two drivers that normally runs the league races to enter the endurance ones everyone else was people that i didn't recognize um the first race was a 50 lapper on the bigger track that went pretty decent i started back in 11th i think there was around 20 drivers in the race Um, i ended up finishing seventh so it was pretty uneventful, but it was still pretty fun for my first race. The second race was on a different layout. It was a little bit shorter, 75 laps. I started back in 10th again, but I was probably 8th or 7th by the first turn. And I kind of worked up to 6th maybe by the end of lap 1. And then from there, I had some really, really good stints because the first card I had was great and it handled good. So I stayed out for pretty long. And I worked all the way up to fourth or third by the time I did the first pit stop. And then once I was there, I came out after the first pit stop. Same place. I worked up to third, third or fourth again. I was fighting the same guy for third the whole race, really. Um, The top two were about five or six seconds ahead of us, but they had the same pace we did. Maybe they were one or two tenths better than us on average, but... They just had very good starts, and we couldn't really do anything about that. And then the last cart swap was kind of where, I guess, kind of where everything stabilized. I was fighting third, and then the last cart I had didn't really handle as good as the other two. So I cycled into third, leaving the pits, but I didn't have much, I didn't really have much grip with the front tire, so that kind of kind of put me in a box. I couldn't really do anything about the guy in fourth. So he got around me pretty quick. And then from there, I just stayed in fourth for the rest of the race. But it really wasn't that bad. It was fun racing. Everyone there ran a lot cleaner than the league races. I think it's probably because it's a longer race. But So did uh, the endurance from, um, I guess, being out in the heat, out there in the Florida sun, uh, did that affect you at all? And then also, um, these are not shifter carts, right? So Yeah, they're um, like the GoPro Motorplex rental carts. They're almost exact copies. Oh, okay. So so 
did the fatigue ever set in to where, because, I mean, with these carts, you're probably using more momentum to race than, than actual, um, I guess, shifting and everything that you would in a, in a traditional uh, shifter cart. I mean, how did all that play into, I guess, your own fatigue? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question, I think. It was probably probably in the 90s of all day. Um, I would guess there wasn't really any clouds or anything like that. And the first race was definitely the hottest one. There was I, I want to say I saw somebody stopped and did an extra pit stop just from fatigue that I was noticing when I was doing my laps. And other than that, I don't there, people didn't really have any problems. I didn't have as many problems as I expected. I thought it would be a lot worse. And by the time I did the three o'clock race, I felt like I could have done a whole extra race after that. So it was interesting. Um, I didn't end up wearing gloves. My hands were definitely a little bit sore after that, but all things considered, it wasn't that bad considering the steering wheels here are a little bit more. Other than that, I didn't notice any problems with fatigue or anything major. I'd get out of the car and I'd be tired, but after 10 or so minutes, then I was pretty much back to normal. That's a lot of distance. I mean, especially being in the hot Florida sun, I feel like I'd have been a good uh, candidate for getting skin cancer if I wasn't wearing any. Oh, yeah, I definitely got a a little bit of a farmer's skin going. We went to um, GoPro Motorplex while we were in Charlotte this weekend. We didn't actually go uh, do anything. We just showed up, watched watched a bit of um, a race happen, and then we just left just to say we went out there uh, because we didn't really have the time to – to spend and then you know all the money and all that stuff that we had spent at the racetrack probably shouldn't have done that so um it looks really fun those carts if they're the same as you described um there was a bunch of people just going into corners and spinning out and stuff um i'm assuming that these guys would have been more experienced in it so it would have been Um, a lot funner to to do yeah i noticed some though that I guess I was one of only two guys that runs the normal league versus the um, versus the endurance racing. Um, I'm assuming that it's probably because the endurance races, you, you can't really drive that dirty in them and still do well because of how long the race is. It's more about really minimizing time loss more than anything else because if you can get consistent laps every single lap and make as little error as possible, then – if you minimize your time loss, then you'll either you'll cycle ahead of people that are you're, that you're faster than. Versus, say, a shorter race like you described, you're going to have a lot more spins or crashes because I think that when the races are short, I think people they try to win the race in turn one if that makes sense. Um, there is there's a lot more give and take in a longer race, which I definitely like, but it's I don't know how to describe it. I think. It's very similar to GoPro, other than the GoPro rental races are timed, obviously, as are most rental races. But the position, the endurance racing is position-based, as is league racing. So I think if you can drive those carts, fine. Then you should be able to drive in leagues or endurance. It's not a big deal. So. Yeah, Nathan, uh, that's pretty exciting, pretty intense to go 100-something laps in a a rental cart despite being on two different layouts and having a break in between the races but you know anybody that has the ability to go out and do some rental carts whether it's indoor or outdoor i would recommend it it's a lot of fun uh but we'll go ahead and move on and in, into woke or joke and 
we're going to kind of call back to the first time that we did this and we're going to go over some patriotic paint schemes from the coke 600 now we're only going to go over a few and these are the ones that kind of went all out so any of the schemes that were just you know adding the stars and stripes just somewhere on the scheme we're not going to count so first up guys i'll start with you nathan uh let's go over the number three with austin dillon absolutely this is 100 percent woke um bass pro has usually had some great patriotic paint schemes um I like the fact that the colors are pretty simple. The paint scheme itself sticks out on the track. It's very, um, it's bright and recognizable, but it's also simple at the same time. So I don't really think there's anything wrong with this paint scheme at all. Yeah, this one is woke. This is a great looking car. This is probably actually my favorite of the weekend. Um, I really like the colors on it and the design on it. Great job of the RCR gang. Yeah, I'm going to have to go woke as well. It's just pretty. I mean... You can tell it's patriotic. There's red, white, and blue. There's stars. Um, and then if you look at the base of the scheme, there's also stars inside of it. So it's just an all-around good-looking scheme. Next up is going to be the number six of Ryan Newman. Oh, man. You're obviously going to get a woke out of me for this one because this might be my favorite scheme of the weekend. I'm not 100% sure on that, but it's definitely tied because I'm a huge sucker for the color blue, and I think that the incorporation of the the red and the blue on the side with the stars, it looks really nice. It's a very simple-looking paint scheme, but it looked really good at night, especially. So, can't go wrong with it. Yeah, Woke, this is a great-looking car. Uh, I'll go Woke as well. Uh, it's just, it's all right, in my opinion, but it is definitely a, a patriotic scheme. Not one of my favorites, but definitely a good-looking car. Next up would be for Spire Motorsports, Corey LaJoey in the number seven car. Ooh, man. That's definitely woke for me. I like how simple it is. It's very easy to pick out on track. You've got all the all the flag colors. Um, they're all lined out on the side. It flows really nicely. Even without all the many stars that you would see in some paint schemes, it still gets the point across just fine. Yeah, seven car, super woke. I really like this scheme. Uh, for me, I'm going to kind of go joke. Don't murder me here, but it reminds me too much of the uh, number 88 quality care, Dale Jarrett car. So I'm kind of thinking this is more like a, a Darlington throwback field and patriotic to me. So I'm going to have to go joke myself. Um, so next up would be the number 10 Smithfield car uh, driven by Eric Amarola. Oh, man. I think the idea of the paint team was good um, to have the normal Smithfield colors and then have the patriotic colors on the side, but the execution didn't really impress me on it. I don't think black mixes very well with stars and stripes. So I'm going to have to go joke on this one. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree. I think the idea was good, um, but I think they could have done a little bit better job at executing it um, to kind of fit the stars and stripes in there a little bit better. Yeah. I'm going to have to go joke as well. I mean, it's just the scheme overall is too busy. The only reason it works with the regular 10 cars because it's only two colors, and now that they've got four colors here, it's just too busy, and then they add the stars on top. I, I, I don't like it. So next up would be the number 14, Chase Briscoe. Let's see. I think I'm going to have to go woke on this one because it had a similar idea to Almirola's paint scheme, but the high point colors definitely work better with the stars and stripes because it's less um, contrasting, if you will. And not that contrasting colors are bad, but the black did not seem to work with the flag colors, whereas the colors of High Point definitely do. And I think I like the 
I like the details they added in the flat, like the stripes on the side with the paint compared to just regular flat paint. So it's definitely good for me. Yeah, I'm probably going to have to agree. I mean, there's very few Stars and Stripes cars that I think look bad. Um, and this certainly was not one of them. Um, I think it looked all right. The the like like Nate said, the colors weren't as contrasting. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go woke on this one as well. I mean, it's this it's the high point scheme, but they just slapped a, a American flag on it. But it, I, I have no complaints. It works very very well, in my opinion. Next up is gonna be Kyle Busch's M and M's ride. That's always a woke for me. I know that this paint scheme is used for many years now, probably at least the last maybe five or six years, but I just love this paint scheme in general. I think it it's really simple. It's really, I guess the word for it is it's very, um, it's very striking. Like you'll always be able to pick it out on track and it doesn't look very ugly at the same time. I think it's just, it's probably going to be one of the throwback paint schemes many years from now. Yeah, I'm going to agree. I'm always a huge fan of M&M's throwbacks just because I think they do a great job of incorporating the sponsor with the colors in there. Um, it's not too overly loud. It's just nice and simple. It's the same design. They just change up the colors on it, and it's super cool looking. Woke. Yeah, I'm going to have to go woke as well. Uh, white always pops, especially on a night race at a asphalt that's really dark like Charlotte. So it, it popped out on the track all night long. It looked beautiful. You can't go wrong. It's very simple. I mean, I mean, there's not a, really a stars and stripes other than that Uncle Sam hat on it it just works next up would be his teammate the number 19 car martin trace jr always woke because ever since 2019 they've kind of used a similar pattern for their patriotic paint teams and this one looks a lot better than last year's without that eagle on the side so can't go wrong with this one either uh i'm the exact opposite i'm gonna go joke because they use this one so much and they don't ever seem to change it around much. It doesn't work quite as well as the Kyle Busch one. I'd like to see him change up the paint scheme. Uh, I'm just going to go joke. Same sort of uh, thing for me as the Eric Amarola scheme. Not necessarily that it's too busy. It's just there's a lot going on. I mean, this, this car is covered in sponsors, which is a good thing, but it also leads to everything kind of clashing with the actual colors itself so I'm, I'm not really a huge fan uh his teammate christopher bell in the 20 car next up you know on this one just because usually the toyota paint schemes don't have much patriotic options to them i don't think i've seen a factory toyota patriotic paint scheme in a long time if ever it's not necessarily my favorite paint scheme but the fact that they went out to do it is enough to get me woke yeah, I'm going to have to go woke for that same reason. I like the attempt on it. I'll just go ahead and make it three wokes. Um, I like it because it's a bit unique. It's not just adding some stripes here or some stars there. Uh, they've got what looks like a flowing part of uh, a banner or something imitating the stripes of the flag. So it, it's a little bit more three-dimensional, um, but not too over the top. So I like it as well. Um, next up was going to be Bubba Wallace's number 23 DoorDash car, and this was honoring Fallen Soldiers. This is absolutely woke for me. Um, I like the fact that they tried to do something a little different. Um, they played off the fact that Memorial Day is usually more of the, the remembrance-type holiday than it is the Stars and Stripes type thing, and I think that it's really unique as a result, and I think the car looked pretty good. So it was a great idea and a great painting. 
Yeah, woke. I really like it. Pretty simple. Uh, I'm going to have to be on the fence here myself. Woke for the idea, woke for the design, but as the sun started setting, it kind of blended in with the track, and it was really hard to spot where Bubble was most of the night once the sun went down, so I'm going to say joke on that that point. So, woke thought, uh, joke execution. Next up is going to be William Byron. You know, they've used this paint scheme in the past before, but I'm still going to go woke because... It's really simple looking paint scheme. I think the way that the stripes are patterned on the sucker makes it stick out quite a bit. Uh, I'm going to go joke. Again, I'd like to see um, new paint schemes come out, not just the same ones that are recycled. Um, and he races this more than just the the patriotic holidays of Memorial Day, July 4th. Um, so I, I definitely feel like it's a bit overused. It's a good looking scheme, but if we're talking special schemes, this one ain't it. Yeah, I'll have to go the opposite there of you, Colton. I'm going to have to go woke. Um, it's basically like the patriotic scheme that has been used by the two the last few years. Of course, not this year uh, with the Miller Lite stuff. Uh, it's good. It's solid. It works. Might as well keep using it. It's a classic, and I'll say woke. Uh, next up is Michael McDowell's Freight Auctions car. I love the idea. I really do, but the general camouflage paint schemes never really spoke to me. So I'm going to have to go joke just based on the fact that I wasn't a huge fan of how it looked. Uh, I'm going to go woke just because I do see Memorial Day as more of a, a military remembrance holiday than I do a, a super patriotic one. I do like the camouflage of it, and they kind of did something a little bit different. Yeah, I'm going to go joke. Uh, there's only one camo scheme that's ever worked in NASCAR, and I think camo is kind of tacky, to be honest. I'm not saying that uh, without not acknowledging uh, the feelings this is supposed to invoke, being that it was Memorial Day. Just from a pure uh, opinion standpoint, the only good-looking camo car was the digital camo car that Dale Jr. ran, I want to say, in 2008 or 2009. Uh, so I'm just not a fan of camo cars. So if anyone shows up with a camo car, I'm probably going to give them a joke. Uh, next up, and finally, is going to be Alex Bowman in the Ally Do-It-Right scheme. Oh, man. Like I, like, I guess like Bolton said... And they had a similar concept, I think, in recent years with the Allied patriotic paint schemes kind of designed to look like a military plane. But I think they nailed it pretty well. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of the hood because the Allied design doesn't really fit in with the military plane type design. So I'm going to have to go joke because I think that the only thing that really ruined the paint scheme was the hood for me. Uh, I'm going to agree completely. I think the paint scheme is woke. So that's what I'm going to give it. However, Ally. Get your shit together. Change that ugly hood that you guys have for the cars. There's no way. We don't need this whole fanning out of the Ally logo. It just makes the whole car look tacky at that point. I've never been a fan of it. Yeah, I'm going to go um, woke myself. I like this scheme. I don't really mind the logo on the hood too much. That's their branding. That's what they're going to do. Um, so I understand that from a marketing point. Uh, but I like the uh, little bitty uh, nod to the dog tags on the back quarter panels on the on the ally logo as well it's just really clean and um i'm glad they built upon what they started with the uh the greenish army green uh 48 last year uh the only thing else we have for woker joke tonight is a tweet chain that got started by erica step and that was a picture of the fanatic merchandise tents and said remember when we these were a thing I commented to it, and then another guy comments, says, I don't 
know how fans like this bullshit. I love the haulers. I liked them before the worthless tents and always voted for haulers in every survey. Real NASCAR fans love haulers. So first I'm going to go woke or joke on the fact that this guy is gatekeeping fans for whether or not they like merchandise tents versus haulers. I don't like the fact that this individual said that you're not a real NASCAR fan if you don't like the haulers. But I'm definitely team hauler on this one in my experiences. I only had one gear of the merchandise tent and I wasn't super impressed with it. So I, even though the haulers might not be as convenient in practice or on paper, um, I think that if you don't buy your merchandise on race day, it's not as much of a difference for me. So I've definitely preferred the haulers and considering the fact that I've met like two or three drivers out of by chance at the haulers. Yeah, I'm going to go joke for his tweet because gatekeeping fans is not something that I'm ever on board with. Um, even if their opinions differ from mine on, say, the playoffs, um, I still don't look at them as any less of a NASCAR fan. I just suggest things like WWE may be more your speed. Um, on the whole, the tent versus the haulers argument, if I want driver merch, I'm going to go to the haulers. But a lot of times when I go to races, I want something from that race that's not just a driver t-shirt or a hat. I would want a program. I want something that commemorates the race, um, a Charlotte t-shirt, if you will. Um, and for that, I mean, the tents is usually where I'll stop first. I'll grab the kind of littler stuff and then the race specific stuff. And then I'll go check out the haulers and see what I can't live without. Yeah, I'm going to go joke to the tweet. I mean, like Colt said, gatekeeping anything is, is ridiculous. It doesn't matter what fandom you're a part of. If you're trying to exclude other fans, then you're not really doing yourself any favors or... Uh, whatever you're following, any favors for that matter, uh, because you're going to stink up who's being looked at like who uh, when new fans are coming along. As for myself, I loved the Fanatic tents, and I know that's an unpopular opinion, obviously because they switched back, uh, but I don't like being elbow to elbow with sweaty, greasy people that have been at a racetrack in the summer heat multiple times and spending multiple hours doing so because... I want to go get a die cast from each driver, whereas going into those Fanatic tents, you could go in and they had a die cast section, you picked up what you wanted, and you got out of there. And then if that wasn't the case, you know, there was also, I feel like, more merch for smaller teams. A lot of the gripes that I saw from people were that all of the merch uh, looked the same, but for were for different drivers, but... Honestly, in my opinion, they still all do. It's still all the same templates for all the same drivers. Um, they're just in haulers now, and I have to wait in multiple lines if I want to get something for myself. You know, my dad, my fiance, her dad. You know, if we all like four different drivers, that's four different lines I have to stay into, and that's just the biggest thing that the, the tents were uh, better at. Moving on from Walker Joke, though, we've got the weekend recap, and we're going to start off with the least of the... Th three races, uh, or I should say least of the four races in regards to stuff happening. And that'll be the Xfinity Series race that happened on Saturday. Um, I guess to start off, guys, Daniel Hemmert lost another one. I mean, what did you guys think of him dominating and then and then losing it like that? You know, I don't know. I feel bad for the guy at this point. I just want him to win a race, man. He's done basically everything but win. So every time that he gets closer and closer to winning, it almost seems like he gets further and further from it. So I I don't know. I don't know what the guy has to do to win at this point. 
Yeah. One of, one of my favorite quotes of all time was from a slap cheese video. Um, and it says that I get it. Shit happens, but some people find themselves in shit more often than not. And I use it quite a bit to explain drivers like Ricky Stenhouse, but Daniel Hemmerich is a lot that same way in terms of winning. Um, I get it. You're going to lose some races, but he seems to find more ways to lose races than he does to win them. Obviously he's never even won a NASCAR sanctioned race ever. Um, and I've never been a huge supporter of him, at least these last couple of years, just because I do see that in him. I don't think he has, I'm sure he has true racer mentality, but I don't think he's out willing to do what it takes to get it done. I think he's more concerned about, you know, f- finishing the race, which is good. But at some point you got to park that thing in victory lane if you're going to hang around for a long time. Yeah. And, and on that last note, I mean, it's surprising that he's been around for so long. I, I've always been kind of a component for, for Daniel Hemrick. And I know he's helped a lot of people come up through the ranks that we see on the track now, um, fighting against him more in the cup series, but you've got to perform. And it's not that he doesn't perform because he's a damn good driver and he can drive the hell out of a race car. It's that he can't finish a race. And it's so odd to be in Joe Gibbs equipment now being top of the line equipment and everything's going right and then all of a sudden something happens on pit road or the engine let go lets go or you get caught up in a wreck with with guys that you shouldn't have been racing because you made a mistake like speeding or or anything like that and it's just like i i would love to be a race car driver i think everybody would but i definitely would not want to be daniel hemmerick because i mean the shit this guy must go through every time he gets out of a race car and he loses another one a completely different way. I, I don't I don't think that I could mentally handle that. It's sort of an example of um you he's pretty much struggling from success because, you know, if he was, say, a little bit worse of a driver, he wouldn't be expected to win. But the fact that he runs up front so much puts more expectations on him to win. So he's kinda in that goal lock zone of he's not bad enough to where he gets a free pass for not winning. But he's not good enough to where he gets excused for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I compared him to like a modern day Reed Sorensen, except Reed Sorensen actually won a couple races in the Bush series. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because in stark contrast uh, from Daniel Hemrick, who's been around for what seems like four or five years now racing in all three series, we've got uh, a rookie coming up and winning two of his first six starts, and that's Ty Gibbs. And I don't know if you guys were paying attention, but at the end of, I believe it was stage two, he came rocketing in front of us sideways, and he spun on the last lap of that stage and still came back to win on Saturday's race. Yeah, um, I'm not overly surprised at the fact that he didn't want another one. I think, if anything, he's this is this is almost by design. I remember a couple nights ago about his development as a driver. Um, he started racing road course carts as a kid. And once he showed enough promise that to where Joe Gibbs himself actually put Brad Parrott in charge of Ty's go-karting and literally made him work on his carts like seven days a week. At that point, they realized how good Ty was and they put him on this quote-unquote 10-year plan at the time that involved him moving up every step of the racing wheel. And he's progressed so quickly that he pretty much skipped one step of the ladder with the truck series, so... I think what you're seeing is the fact that he pretty much dedicated his entire life to this and he had a lot of great opportunities and equipment along the way. So he took full advantage of that. Like you can't just say, oh, it's because his last name is Gibbs because that last name isn't going to make, isn't going to win all those races for you. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, you can have all the training in the world, but just because your last name is what it is, or you have that training, doesn't mean you're gonna you're gonna perform. Um, there's been another Gibbs that raced. Coy Gibbs raced in the Bush Series for quite a while as well, um, and he hasn't done anything close to what Ty has done. Um, I think Ty is the real deal. Granted, he is a bit of a silver spoon kid, um, but I still think he's one to watch over the next few years at very least to see how his career progresses. Um, but we all know he's going to be in the cup series within the next few years. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned Coy Gibbs cause that's actually his father, but like you said, he's going to be considered a silver spoon kid and, and rightfully so. I mean, your last name is on the same, uh, as the building that you drive for. So, I mean, it is there. Uh, it's no different than Austin and Ty Dillon, except sometimes silver spoons, do it right, you know. I mean, look at Dale Earnhardt Jr. for for example. I mean, he's got thirty something wins. He's won multiple Daytona five hundreds. Most popular driver could have won a championship two thousand four and two thousand fourteen if fate had went another way. Ty Gibbs is going to be that kind of driver, in my opinion. I mean, he's doing things he shouldn't be able to do at eighteen in those series and you can tell me it's a part of equipment but i can also look at brandon jones and daniel hemrick and harrison burton and say they haven't done that and he's he's only had six races compared to their i think 10 this year so i i just i don't buy into that this guy has got talent he's a ferocious little dude he's cocky and i can't wait to see him um come up through through the ranks maybe we get a full-time season in, in xfinity maybe two in the near future, but I, I can't wait to see where this kid goes. With that race from Saturday, we'll move to Friday night, backtracking a little bit, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and warn uh, you guys that uh, the next couple of minutes are probably not going to be too pretty, so uh, viewer discretion is advised. Um, let's go ahead and get the trucks kind of out of the way with a general view of the race, and then we'll get into the controversial stuff. Uh, so, Colton, I'll lead you off on this one. What did you think of the truck race? Uh, prior to all the stuff we'll get into in a bit. I mean, I thought it was a pretty good race. Um, I, I kind of expect the trucks to put on a halfway decent show just because they do have the younger talent, not quite as much experience with even trucks and whatnot. Um, as to be expected, the KBM trucks were out front and kind of whooping ass as they always do. But I still thought it was a pretty damn good race. I mean, we had a lot of action middle in the back of the pack as well. Yeah. Um, honestly, that truck race was so weird to where – I did pay a good bit of attention to the race, and I thought it was really interesting, but that crash was so confusing, and I spent most of my time on that looking at Twitter because I knew that it was going to be a pretty juicy comment section after that. Yeah, I um, I really enjoyed the truck race. It was probably my favorite race of the weekend. Um, it could have been Xfinity, but I was just too hot and exhausted. Um, it was a little too hot for my fat ass out there on Saturday. But, um, no, the truck race, we had the scanners for the first time. I've never actually uh, done the scanners before. I was listening to TJ Majors, you know, just because being familiar with him from Doorbuck McClear. Uh, and, of course, he spots for Haley Deegan in that series. And it was really a good experience. Uh, it made that race, it might have been boring up front, but I wasn't really caring that it was boring up front because I was trying to root for a car to do better the whole night listening to them change, you know, you know, do setup changes, weaving in and out of traffic, passing people, um, hearing the coaching from TJ to Haley uh, was interesting because 
when I listened to him on Sunday with Joe Logano, he had a totally different vibe about him. So it was really interesting to see how he changed himself uh, to the driver and their needs. And then Haley Deegan herself, um, not really being in stock cars too, too long. And the way that she kind of explained everything to the team and to TJ and what she wanted and what she needed was a lot more excelled than I thought she would be at that time. So I was kind of kind of impressed by that. Um, and then the only other thing that I uh, thought was really cool about the race was that save by Drew Dollar in that first big wreck that we saw where Sheldon Creed got sideways and he just was about an inch off of of the rear bumper there and uh, needled it through the uh, wall and the other trucks there. Pretty, pretty cool. Um, it was very eventful. A lot of wrecks, a lot of cautions. Pretty, pretty decent race for what would be, uh, uh, I guess, increasingly boring weekend. Yeah, I had completely forgot about that save, actually. Um, Drew Dollar is one hell of a wheelman. He did, however, get caught up in the uh, the big wreck of the night, and uh, I'll kind of lead off Colton with this one. Yeah, so um, for those of you that didn't see it, um, it's been all over social media the last couple days. Um, but there was a slow truck up top and this guy was absolutely crawling. Um, and NASCAR did not throw the caution out to slow these guys down. They came around turn four and Johnny Sauter sideswiped this dude. I mean, this was one of the hardest impacts I've ever seen in the truck series. Um, completely took the side off of Johnny's car, completely crushed the side of the 14 truck. Um, this was a very, very bad and very preventable wreck, um, just my main thoughts of it were NASCAR. Why the hell did you not throw a caution? Of course they hopped on Twitter and they said, well, actually Bob Pockers had tweeted that while NASCAR was watching, I think it was the 88 on pit road. And you know, they didn't see the 14 truck, which in that case you are the, uh, I mean the top motor racing uh, sanction in America. Uh, Why the hell do we not have multiple people watching incidents on the track and why are they if we do why are they only staring at one thing that's going on the track my local short track does a way better job of stopping the cars even when there's multiple incidents i've seen two three cars spin at a time and maybe two of them get going but one of them doesn't they still throw the goddamn caution and this is at a a little short track where the lap times are like 15 seconds so in this big super speedway of charlotte motor speedway the home of nascar why could we not figure this out i mean this could have killed someone this, this was a super dangerous situation, 100% avoidable, avoidable, and I was reaming NASCAR new one on Twitter for like two days after this. Yeah, and uh, you, you said a lot there, and someone who's officiated races for the last, uh, got, I guess, 14 years now, pathetic. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, th- that's the only word really to describe it. They do have more than one person watching the race and they've got spotters all over the track they've got the ability to look at different things yes one man has his finger on the trigger to put it out but there was probably multiple people yelling at him to do so prior to this on our scanner tj called out the one uh they're 14 he's like he says hey we got one slow uh in one i think he cut a tire Notice I said in one, not in three, in one. So I didn't see this car, but if that was correct information, that means he went rolling slow from turn one all the way to turn three, 
to when to when his tire popped and he hit the wall and he was at a crawl when he got to the exit of four where that that crash happened. None of that is excusable. Absolutely shouldn't have happened. And like Colton said, if guys like me can watch a whole race where they're clicking by 15 and under second laps and no winner winner would not to throw a caution based on single car spins and stuff like that where there's leaders coming there's no excuse for you to do it when you know there's imminent danger because they're doing over 150 mile an hour um and then another part of this crash that was really really ridiculous is something i'll let uh nathan get into uh with the response time uh to johnny slaughter yeah that was pretty weird to me um there's another one of those instances where you think that, hey, this is the top sanctioning body in America. Why don't we have as good of a safety crew that IndyCar has? And a lot of people on Twitter would come at me and say, hey, NASCAR uses the same AMR safety team as IndyCar. And no, they definitely don't. The difference is that the safety team supplied by AMR consists of, I think, two traveling doctors, and that's it. And all of the other marshals and firemen are not traveling to every single race. Whereas with IndyCar you literally have the same 30 people that travel to every single race. And that includes the doctors and come to think of it. I think that's a much better way to do things because they're more specifically trained for these types of incidents to where they're always on the scene quickly. They pretty much have everything mapped out. They know what to do. And it seems like NASCAR safety crew has a lot of disconnect, you know, just because the doctors might know what to do doesn't necessarily mean that the other people on the team know what to do because if not all of them travel, I assume not all of them have the exact same experience or training level. I think that there has to be like, you can't use cost as an issue because any has much less money than it and they're still able to bring these people in and have a quality, a quality environment when it comes to that stuff. So I don't see how NASCAR has gone as long as they have without having an entire dedicated roster that travels to every single race. And that includes, you know, your your neuro your neurologist and all that kind of stuff, your orthopedic surgeon, all the doctors that you need and all the people that are trained, like EMTs and paramedics and all that kind of stuff. Like it's just it's just unfathomable for me to think that a company as big as they do gets outclassed by a company probably half the budget yeah and my biggest point that i tried to make over this weekend was someone had tweeted out that johnny Sauter had sat there for 107 seconds um with his window net up before anyone even came up to his truck that's one minute 47 seconds think to yourself how long a minute and 47 seconds is that's that's half of a beatles song you know and if if i mean Thank God he walked away, because if he didn't, NASCAR would be absolutely hounded over this. Um, And they still should be, because that's absolutely ridiculous. Even think if you had a broken ankle and you had to sit there with NASCAR watching over you. Again, one of the highest sanctioning bodies in all of motorsports and definitely the highest in America, staring at your truck with an incident that was completely avoidable and making sure that they send the safety crews out to Trey Hutchins first. What what the hell is going on here? Right. And think about it. Like if you, those hundred those hundred seven seconds, if a, say if a driver's got a cut artery or something and they're bleeding out, like that could literally be the difference between life and death. Yeah. No one knows what had happened because no one went up to him for two minutes. 
the window net was still up. So obviously he's not all right enough to drop that immediately after the truck stopped. Yeah, and that's the, that's the signal to to everyone that everyone everybody's okay. And you know, I was live tweeting that race, um, and that's what I put. I said there's movement, but the window net's still up. He's hurt, and he wound up not being hurt. But I was sitting there gasping. We felt the impact of that wreck where we were sitting. It happened right in front of us. And there was a concussion when they hit, and it was just insane. And he comes to a rest, and I can see his head moving, but at that point, he, he could just be rocking around in pain, for all I know. And no one went to check on him. And it's not that they didn't get into the car in less than 15 seconds. They didn't even check on this man. He could have been limp and dead, and we wouldn't have known for 107 seconds. Yeah, and that's I think ridiculous. The, was it Sebastian Bourdais in IndyCar that hit the wall at Indy and actually a piece of the front suspension came through the cockpit and impaled him? Uh, James Hinchcliffe. James Hinchcliffe. That's yeah, right. that's another one right there. I think the time that he had, those two minutes basically that the doctor said at the ER got him into the surgery, they said he was quote-unquote two minutes away from dying. And the fact that the safety crew was on the scene like 20 or 30 seconds later, that, that was definitely what made the difference in him. Or even like Alex Zanardi, for example, he lost both his legs. And when both your femoral arteries are cut, you usually don't survive, let alone having one of them cut. Um, it, it, those guys are literal living proof that response time does matter. And as much as people say that it doesn't, it definitely does in certain cases. And even those just every one in a million case like James Hedgecliffe, that's enough to justify a good safety response time. You know, I think we've we've gotten kind of complacent in the safety that is in our sport because we're not open wheel. But kind of like what, what Colton said after the Circuit of the Americas race, this is just negligence towards towards the safety of the drivers. And, and yeah, I get it. This other guy got hit, but Johnny Sauter did too. Where is his help at? I, I don't understand because we're putting these drivers in more and more compromising com- um, positions and it, and it feels like we're just getting worse and worse each week. And I don't want to know where that cap is to where it finally does something that we definitely don't want to see. And NASCAR needs to be ahead of that and having a two-person safety team is not. Yeah, well, well, we'll go ahead and move on to Sunday. Uh, we saw two uh, races, if you want to call one of them that. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into the Coke 600. Um, I was at the track. I thought that the intro to the races, all the pre-race ceremonies was really awesome. They had some Blackhawks come and drop some troops out. They did a full lap around the racetrack, pretty much at eye level with anyone sitting close to where the um, entrances to the stands were, and they dropped them off. They got in Humvee and rode all the way around the track. It was really cool, you know. The the usual uh, military uh, salute slash, um, I guess, gun show that they do uh, at, at both of these races, actually, and uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, but after that, that was about it. Everything else that happened Sunday night was was just not even worth talking about as far as a racing uh, fan goes. I mean, we're probably going to get 
into a, a really big argument with ourselves in the next 10 to 20 minutes on this. But, guys, that was the worst race that I have ever been to live. And I've been to some pretty bad ones. I can think back to 2016 Atlanta uh, where Jimmy Johnson dominated the day. But the difference between that and now is they still had horsepower back then. And they could pass. This time it, it seemed like there was maybe two cars that could pass. And nothing happened. And it was just a four 100 lap stints of Kyle Larson and the rest of the field just going fast and turning left. I mean, to me, it was the epitome of what people think of when they think of NASCAR because they think it's just people going in circles really fast. That's all that race was. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I see a lot of people talking on Twitter about, well, this is what happens when the fastest car dominates, but that wasn't even the, the issue. The the package and the passing and the wide open in the corners was the big issue. Um, I'm all for a good fashion ass whooping. I really don't mind it at all when the fastest car goes out and kicks absolute ass. But if the fastest car is going to go out and just completely mop the field, we might as well give them the horsepower back so we can at least see battles in the middle of the field. And granted, there were a few that the broadcast just didn't show. But, I mean, they were super few and far between. I mean, most of the time we were just watching Kyle Larson kick marbles and everyone while he was passing the 66 car. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that 66 car was something else. I feel like we saw him on screen every 10 minutes. He was going so much slower than the rest of the field. It was it was almost dangerous. And it's not that I don't think David Starr is capable of doing well behind the wheel because we've seen him have glimpses of talent um, in his various races in all three series. But that car was just off. I don't know what NASCAR's minimum speed is, but they got to raise it. I mean, if it's got to be a 107% rule like Formula 1 has, Get those guys off the track. That was dangerous. The only passing that I saw all night was the whole field going around that car. It, it was atrocious. Um, yeah, and and that goes back to problems with the charter system. Anyone can go buy a charter so long as there's one available, and they can feel the car, and as long as they hit whatever minimum speed is, I think at Charlotte it's probably only like 150 miles an hour, to be honest with you. Um, but as long as they hit that minimum speed, they can go out there and collect a paycheck, and they don't have to be competitive. Granted, NASCAR says they have to be competitive, but they don't. I mean, we see the 66 and the Rick Ware cars every year, and every race, it seems like, just kind of drudging along, filling up space. Let's let's put better cars out there than that. This is a crown jewel race. I mean, the talking point shouldn't be on how many times a car gets lapped because he's going so slow. And I thought another thing that's funny is when we talked about how bad that race was, I thought it was a hilarious tweet that referenced I guess people shouldn't complain about Rick Ware racing because they pretty much saved that race from being nothing because almost half of the passes in the position changes for second place with um, the 9, the 24, and the 18 happened because they had to check up for a lap car. Um, when you have a package that literally relies on lap traffic to create a pass, you got a problem. Yeah, and not, not to hold anything against Rick Ware racing um, as far as that, because honestly, they were putting on a good show between themselves. The 51, uh, 52, and 53 uh, were, were all actually battling each other for the first two stages at the very least, and it was actually a little bit more entertaining than the rest of the quote-unquote racing going on. But, you know, at, at some point, we definitely need to look into what's unsafe and that 66 car being out there was really unsafe um the package itself like you said they really could only pass if they were coming up on lap traffic yeah that, 
most mostly true. I mean, so we were sitting right at the entrance of pit road. We were right there where they were coming out of four. I never saw one car get loose all night. They were either plowing tight or they were they were perfect. That that was the only two options, and that's not something I'm used to because sitting in that same spot for many years at Atlanta, you just see them guys wheeling it off of the turn in on on the exit of turns two and turns four. You know all that horsepower, and they're just swapping hands end over end trying to keep that car straight coming out through the dog legs. There was none of that. I mean the. The wicked tight was the only thing that we had all night. That's what happened to the Suarez guys. They were so tight, they popped a tire. And because nothing was happening during the race, they couldn't get back on the lead lap despite having top 10 speed all night. It was just a pathetic excuse for a race. And I'll go on to a fact. I also saw a tweet that I wanted to mention. It's funny to me how the Indy 500 had less cautions too then the Coke 600 three were planned. Yeah, and, yeah and, and they were all planned. And they were all planned. So it, it, we'll get into the Indy 500 later, but how, 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 how is this thing? This, these stages made this race even worse. When the stages came out, I was like, okay, well, at least we'll get to 600, right? We'll have 120 laps, 280 lap stages. And then they were like, no, 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 we'll have four 100 lap stages. And that just ruined the race because it's neutered strategy to where, oh, well, we have to split this in, in half to have the best tire strategy. So some guys are going to come in at lap 48. Some guys are going to wait to 52. And the rest of the guys are going to do in the in-between. That's all that happened. There was no strategy involved. There was no trying to get ahead of someone by getting off sequence. It was 50-lap stint, 50-lap stint stage. 50 lap stint, 50 lap stint stage, and they did that four times, and it was abysmal to watch. I mean, what do you guys think is going on? I mean, would this race have been better with this package with no stages? I mean, is it just a culmination of everything that happened, or or, or what? I I do think it's it's the combination yeah. of the package and the stages. Um, however. I've always been a fan of if NASCAR is going to have stages, just don't throw a caution. Just reward the points yeah. and then let them race. Because then that it, in this scenario for this race, it would have forced teams to either pick between a really good strategy to maybe cut out a full pit stop by running it a little bit longer every run or going for stage points. And I think we would have seen a hell of a lot better battles. Granted, they still probably couldn't have passed, but we would have at least seen strategy play out. And you would have been able to see, okay, well, Larson sacrificing these stage points because he's on X strategy, right? Whereas Michael McDowell and Bubba Wallace may have just been hunting for those stage points. So to, to your point, I think the package and then the cautions for the stages ruin this race. I think if you're going to have stage cautions, I think that the first and second stages should be short and the third stage should be a long run. I don't like having equal length stages because it kind of takes the, it takes the, the aspect of it out where one you have one super long run if they're all the same so definitely not a fan yeah i i wasn't a fan when they said they were going to put this extra stage anyways i mean yeah it's longer than the rest of the races but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not worth the same amount of points as the rest of the races the only reason that the duels got points is because those were two physically different races from the 500 and i could kind of see where they're going for 
for with that and I kind of respect the stage points there but just throwing another stage in here just to break it up to make sure that we've got enough room for commercials and stuff it, it's a joke to me and I think it's a joke to pretty much anyone watching um I I don't understand the decision when they went to stages why they did this race this way and I don't like it in execution and especially after seeing it in person I mean, it was just the same race four times over. They just copied and pasted it, and, and it was it was a it was a joke. Um, now, looking at everything, we also had PJ One, and I don't know if I heard a lot of stuff about PJ One because I was at the track, so not a lot of things were going on. They weren't talking about it over the the PA, and I was listening to scanners and stuff like that. But from my own perspective, it seemed like. The PJ1 was good enough to keep you the position on the outside, but it was not good enough to be better than the inside line, which made passing near impossible, and there was only a couple guys that could do it. You would be able to run in turn three and get a hell of a deep run and beat a car three-quarters of the way through three and four if you were someone like Tyler Reddick. But if that car was... Even within a car length behind you, they would be able to get such a better exit on the PJ1, you couldn't pass them. And you would be beside them for two or three laps until your tires wore out and they just ran away from you. So that's what, for me, the PJ1 was doing, was it was it was just enough there to prevent passing and it didn't help it at all. Is that what you guys saw on TV? Yeah. Um, for, the, for the most part, yeah. I mean, it, it really all it did was save tires for guys. Um, and I mean, if we want to make a bigger argument here, PJ one, all it does in, I mean, in practice is shift the racing line from the bottom to the top or vice versa, wherever they apply it. I mean, that's, that's all it does. Yeah, exactly. I think the only track where it's made a legitimate difference is like New Hampshire because it gives the bottom lane a more viable option to pass cars and everywhere else. New Hampshire is the only track that it's really added multiple grooves and same, maybe, same maybe for Bristol. Other than those two tracks, it's literally just moved the line around. It hasn't actually lighted an extra line. Yeah, and I can I can kind of agree with that. I don't understand why we've been using it on bigger tracks. Um, both of those are top dominant tracks that you've listed there, Nathan, with New Hampshire and Bristol. And the two tracks that they've used it, or I guess three tracks really, that they've used it at with uh, Texas, Charlotte, and Phoenix are all bottom dominant grooves. And we've seen, we talked about it after the Phoenix race about how we didn't like it, how it just moved up the racing line and made it impossible to pass because you couldn't move someone out of the way because they were already in that second lane if you were trying to pass them on the underside. Like I said, I guess there's only two tracks it works at. I think I like the addition at my room especially because it makes a middle lane racetrack have a usable bottom groove. And then same goes for Bristol. It adds kind of a second lane aspect where it kind of mixes the old and new. But like I said, I cannot point to a single other racetrack where it's actually had the desire. I'll use your terminology and say I can point to something that, that makes PJ1 totally um, useless, and that's the package. So we didn't need PJ1 prior to limiting horsepower starting in 2015. Passing happened at every track. It happened less at some tracks, like your Poconos, Phoenix, your New Hampshire, um, Gateway for the lower series, 
just because some tracks don't pass as well. But if we had the horsepower, doesn't matter the downforce. You know, if we if we've got that 850 plus horsepower going into going into this race, we could have seen guys passing and ripping the top like they used to even after the the track was just recently repaved and also going around the bottom. I mean, I don't understand how NASCAR can look at what they're seeing, like what they're seeing, and fans appreciate what they're seeing. Because, yes, some guy could go out there and go off on a tear and finish 14 seconds in front of second place. But behind him, there's usually going to be comers and goers and guys that are running the outside line, guys that are running in the middle, and guys that are running in the bottom of the racetrack. And I don't know about you guys, but that's what I want out of my racing. Yeah, I think if if you bump up the horsepower, you naturally see passes because guys are A, hanging onto their cars, B, really trying to save their equipment because they're wearing out tires more, kind of wheeling around, sliding around. Um, you see better pit stop or better setups as well because they're not just kind of planning for what the field's going to be like. They're planning for how the driver likes to drive the cars, and I think that's what this package and the PJ1 combined really sacrifices the drivers can't drive their car loose anymore if they like it loose. They can't drive it a little bit tight if they might like it that way. Um, it's really just as long as it sticks, it sticks. And that's that's kind of what we look out for now, um, which is, I mean, really a shame, especially since these are the best stock car drivers in the country. Um, they can't drive their cars, and the PJ1 only amplifies that. Yeah, and there's no throttle response or anything, and it's all about momentum, and usually momentum-based racing is not good for ovals, because what's the point of, of running up on someone and then stalling out and not being able to pass them because they've clipped your momentum, and you can get around that with throttle response, you can get around that with torque and horsepower, and and we have none of that right now, and we see that the the trucks and Xfinity cars are pushing more horsepower than the cup cars on the big tracks, and it's it's a bit ridiculous. If it's working for a lower series, why aren't you doing it in the upper series? And Bob Pockris tweets that it's not necessarily for the racing. NASCAR says that they're doing it to try to impress manufacturers who want to be around that 550 horsepower number. And I've, I said this on my personal Twitter, and I'm going to assume that you guys are going to agree with me with my take on this, but in my opinion, if they are doing it for new manufacturers, NASCAR's covering their ass here because there's no way that a new manufacturer is going to build a pushrod V8 and then choke the motor. If they're going to come in and they want to meet a number, they'll say, let's put a V6 hybrid in there that makes 550 horsepower before the electric motor kicks in because they want to put that technology to the test on the track before they put it in their cars. They're not gonna. They're not gonna go out there and make an obsolete engine and run it at 550 horsepower. We're learning absolutely nothing about an engine that would produce that much while using some that we could potentially push to upwards of a thousand horsepower. I do not get that line of thinking, and I, and I kind of want to ask you guys: Do you think that's just NASCAR saving face, covering their ass, or are they just that? So, so far confused about what the hell they're doing that that statement is legitimate from them. Yeah, I, I don't really know what else to add. I, I, I think that 
it's pretty sad that they literally did this to attract manufacturers and they're not attracting anything. So they've successfully ruined the racing and they've not done a single thing of what they were intending to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's A, saving face, and then B, them not knowing what the hell they want anymore. Um, they They keep saying it's for manufacturers, but if I'm a manufacturer, I mean, let's say I'm, you know, Dodge or I'm Honda, the, I, I have the money in pocket. The cost isn't really going to be that that much of a dent in my pocket, right? These companies are making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars a year, a couple million to go field one or two cars to start out and then kind of grow from there. That That's going to be basically nothing for these guys. Um, and, and saying that, you, I, I've also heard him say that they want it closer to the production cars. Well, I can go buy a Camaro off the lot right now with more horsepower than these cup cars have at the 550 package. Um, so I think it, it leans more towards them not knowing what the hell they want because when they start doing stage cautions, they realize the strategy was ruined. So how do you fix that? You make every track damn near a plate track and have the cars super close together. Now, I don't know. If it gets to that point, I think I might actually be one of the ones that say I'm done with this forever because I love stock car racing. It has been my life. Honestly, I mean, I've based my whole personality around it. Um, maybe that's not healthy and I should get something else to do, but, but damn it, stop ruining it. I'm not asking for extravagance. I'm asking for pure racing, and that's it. If the racing itself is good, people will like it and fans will come back, and you will stop hemorrhaging them like you have been for the last 14 years. Absolutely. If the racing's good and fans like it, more manufacturers are going to come in. We saw Toyota come in. Um, we saw Dodge make a comeback to NASCAR. Um, and they left because they kind of saw the direction it was going. Um, well, Toyota didn't, obviously. Um, but I'm, I'm right with you. I think this next car is going to be kind of our, our uh, the, the coin toss, if you will, whether it's going to be good or bad. Because um, we know they're going to keep doubling down on the PJ1, on the 550, um, on these the extra stages at the long races. Um and it, it, it's not getting to be a good look, especially with what we saw this last weekend. I'm hoping by some grace of God that we just have some change of face. Maybe someone comes in there and says, I'm putting my foot down. Uh, the direction that we've been the last few years has been wrong, and we apologize for that. Um, but if they do do that, all the fans that came in during this era with the stages, with the playoffs, with – the 550 tracks are going to be like, why are you changing it? And they're just going to lose more fans. So I, I, I don't know what has to happen, but either way, it seems like it's a lose-lose situation, but it's a box that they put themselves in. Yeah, completely. Well, I was at the race. I've told you what I saw. I told you how I felt. Um, I, I, I really feel that uh, myself and my fiance Myra could have just not spent money on Sunday's race and went somewhere else, maybe watched a movie since movie theaters are opening back up. I don't know. Probably would have got more enjoyment out of watching um, the new Cruella movie than than, uh, than that Coke 600. Uh, but what did you guys see from home? Obviously, I didn't get to watch the broadcast because I was at the track, and then what I did saw didn't make me want to rewatch it like I usually do when I go to the races because why would I want to watch that again? So... What what was your guys' thoughts on what was broadcasted on Sunday night? I did not like the broadcast at all. Um, I'm starting to kind of get tired of Fox's comedy approach to everything. Um, NBC's Indy 500 coverage kind of showed the contrast between the two networks, and it's just 
It's pretty sad. I just want to see the races treat like professional sports for once. Yeah, I'm with you. I knew Fox coverage had really gone down this past few years, and it wasn't near as apparent as it was on Sunday um, when you saw the Indy 500 and then the Coke 600 back-to-back. Um, Fox definitely has this kind of huck-huck-chuckle point of view on the broadcast. And honestly, I really feel bad for Mike Joy because I think Clint Boyer instigates most of it. Jeff Gordon kind of plays off of the both of them, and then Mike Joy is actually kind of trying to be serious for most of the time. Um, and it was except, exceptionally bad this last Sunday. I mean, they showed Jay Leno on screen for about 10 minutes. While he, you see the camera on Jay, and he's watching the race. He's watching cars go around, and they're just camera on him telling jokes for 10 minutes instead of covering one of the crown jewel races in NASCAR. Yeah, um, exactly. I think we've mentioned before the commercials are terrible because they seem to have commercials every 10 laps. Um, but, I mean, now more so than ever, the actual coverage of the race I mean, it's awful, to say the least. I really hope Fox just either cancels their their contract or just refuses to put a bid in next time they're up. I'd I'd love to see this go somewhere else because I don't think Fox is going to pick it up. Yeah, I'm kind of sad, like you said, with the jokes and stuff. Like, it just becomes increasingly corny, and you see it with all of their sports coverage. Um, Their NFL coverage is kind of the same way. They try to have all these corny jokes and stuff. I think they're just pandering to casual viewers and I think they've kind of it's kind of run its course because they've done it for so long and if you've watched it for more than a couple years it's not that funny anymore like it's just it's it's a clown show that's the only thing it really is yeah I can kind of see where you're coming from uh there uh Nathan they've kind of been especially with these pro invitational um broadcast they've kind of been really really goofy and and i don't mind it for that uh you know they're about to have the um chicago street course here in a few minutes rolling off and and they've got joey logano in house and clinton boyer and they're all joking around and it's and it's fun and i'm not going to say that's a bad thing because i feel like it's really it's a really good way to get people to kind of get used to the personalities in the booth and stuff like that and if they're just scrolling through channels on a wednesday night it's a really good way to be like hey this nascar thing's kind of kind of fun but when it comes to when it comes to the the sunday booth i mean i love clint boyer death um he's hilarious um but as we've gone through the season i've kind of been like wow this is kind of worse than when they wanted dw to be goofy every week you know and it wasn't like that when fox started out yes dw is a funny guy yes he and larry mcreynolds and mike joy cut up a lot but it was it was situationally aware of what was going on in the race, and we still saw very good analysis between Larry Mack and DW um, with the you know once in a generation talent that is Mike Joy for broadcasting races bounce off each other and put on great broadcasts for however many years it was, and then once with Larry Mack left the booth and, and Jeff Gordon got in, we started to get more comical and more comical and more comical. Um, so I don't know. I don't know exactly what you guys saw on Sunday. Obviously, again, like I said, I didn't watch the broadcast being at the racetrack. But I, I understand where Fox is heading and why you guys don't like it because I don't like it either. Um, yeah, and uh, and to your point about DW, he was at least goofy and comical about the race. Um, Clinton Jeff, I feel like are just up there trying to tell as many jokes as they can. Um, and they've been playing off their Phoenix 
fight here for all season. Every single week we hear something about it. Um, whereas I feel DW was mostly goofy comments about how a car was handling or about how someone was driving. Yeah, and, and, and the, the goofy part about DW is the boogie boogie boogie. And I don't care who you are. If you didn't like that, you're stuck up. You know, there is room for things like that in broadcasting. There's room for funny catchphrases or jokes or whatever. But Clint Boyer, like I said, love him to death. But they've gone pretty much overboard. And they're just kind of using him as comment relief. And I guess I don't know if they think the races are just as boring as we do sometimes or what. But they're they're abusing the, the comedic uh, role that he has. And that could be it. They just know these races are super boring. There's not a whole lot to talk about without trashing NASCAR and saying, well, it's impossible to pass. And so they're just kind of trying to fill it with as much filler as they can. And that's kind of why we led down this road. I think that probably has something to do with it is because especially since Clint has driven this package, he's he's not going to get on air and say, well, these cars you can't really pass unless you get an absolute wide open run and you just so happen to get lucky with a lap car. You know, he's, he's going to make a quick joke about it and then wait for the camera to pan. Yeah, I think it's so forced more than anything. It's the thing that doesn't really make it that fun anymore. Yeah, and something that, that wasn't forced is the month of May's coverage in Indy. Uh, we, we talked about it uh, last week about how they did a 58-minute segment commercial-free for Indy 500 pole qualifying for the Fast 9. And their coverage worked on Sunday for what should have been the middle chunk of the triple header, but wound up being our first slice of racing pie on Sunday. The Indy 500 was an amazing race. The broadcasting was phenomenal for the last half of the race that I saw. And like I said earlier, we only had two cautions, whereas the Coke 600's three cautions were planned outside of the couple that happened uh, with the one blowing up. Nathan, I'll start with you. This is this is kind of your bread and butter. Um, you're an open-wheel fan. I mean, you love to see it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it shows you that good races can come in all shapes and sizes. Um, you can have a race with 25 cautions that's really entertaining with a short sprint to the finish, or you can have a race like you had on Sunday where you had – only two cautions and almost all the race was run green and still have a great race. Um, it, it goes to show you that it doesn't really matter how chaotic a race is. As long as the race itself can provide good action, the rest takes care of itself because even you would think that people would say, Oh, you know, there's not enough cautions. That's what I say. But I think that kind of went to show you that the notion that you need crashes to have a good race is pretty much null and void because you were like, I was kind of on the edge of my seat the whole race. I didn't really know whether the fuel saving would work out or whether or not, or which one of the guys that was pushing to the end would win out of that lead pack. It's just, it, it was a crazy race. And I think a lot of it was natural. And I think that time will definitely reward it over the years. It'll go down as one of the best of the 500s because not only the storyline, but because of, how good of a race that was that didn't have any manipulation behind it. Like it was all natural. Yeah. And uh, speaking of how good the race was, um, they, they do market the Indy 500 as the greatest spectacle in racing. And 
Colton, I don't know if you watched last year. It was kind of a snooze fest. And IndyCar fixed the package this year, and they had a lot of passing. Um, I, I just want to ask you, because I thought that it was pretty decent racing, but what did you think of that last stint between Alex Plo and Elio Castroneves there? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Um, I was kind of rooting on. I have a group chat with the chairgating guys, and they at first they didn't really understand kind of what was going on. They didn't really like IndyCar. And by the end of it, I mean, they were just as much on the edge of their seats as I was. Um, it was fantastic to see those fuel strategies play out the way they did. Um, and then I really liked the whole, you, you'd see someone get a run all the way into the straightaway. And then by the back end, you can see the move coming. And then your mind immediately shifted to, okay, how is Pelot going to set this up? How is Castroneves going to come back and set this guy up? Um, it was, I mean, super entertaining. The last 20, 30 laps seemed like they just absolutely flew by. Um, just because I was so in, encapsulated in the racing that was going on. Yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. Uh, someone who's ventured up to the Indy 500 twice, I can say, even if it's a boring race, it's, it's definitely the greatest spectacle in racing. And what we got Sunday was a little bit of everything. And I, I don't know if I would call it my favorite, just because I was there in 2017 when we saw the records break for most passes and most lead changes. But that was a damn good race. Uh, like like you guys have both said, we only had two cautions. It, it, it happened naturally. Um, there, was, there was pit strategy during the middle of the race, and then there was just this whole build-up to the finale that was multiple passes between Alio and Pelot. And and like you said, Colton, we were just waiting to see who was going to do what and who was going to get get the uh, finish there at the end. And I got to say, this was a very historic moment. Elio Castroneves has been racing in this race for, I want to say it's 21, maybe 23 years. And he had won three with Roger Penske. And he just got number four. And that that was historical. Um, that was very fun for 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 me to see, and I'm sure um, melted hearts around the racing world. Uh, he had an absolutely epic celebration. They did not cut the commercial for what felt like 15 minutes. He ran up and down the track, climbed the fence twice. I mean, guys, how were you guys feeling after Elio got out of that car? Oh man, that's crazy! I think that was one of the that might have been the longest post race celebration I've ever seen. Um, very strange, but it was pretty entertaining. I think it's going to be one of those things that we look back on as like, hey, I remember watching Elio's twenty minute celebration. I think it'll be looked back on pretty fun. Yeah, and honestly, as I look back on this, I think I'm going to remember the celebration more than I am the actual race, um, just because of the emotion that was behind it. I mean, on the broadcast, they kept it going for so long. You felt like you were there celebrating with him. It was really hard, even if you were an Alex Pelot fan, to not cheer for Elio Castroneves right there because, I mean, they were climbing the fence. They were got down. He was running up and down the front stretch. I mean, he was hugging people. He even hugged Juan Pablo Montoya, who was in that same race. Um, and just it was pure emotion. It was fantastic. NASCAR could definitely learn a thing or two about this, about not immediately shoving a camera and a microphone in a guy's face. And, and he just kept it going. He was showing the love to everybody. You could tell that he was stoked. He had been trying for so long to get number four, to join that list. And 
the man deserved every bit of the celebration that he got. I mean, that was a lot of hard work. He did it for uh, a smaller team that he had won the other three with. I mean, you're talking about the guy that owns the Indianapolis Motor Speedway now, and Roger, Roger Penske is where he got those other three wins. And he he goes out and gets a win uh, for, a, for a small team. Um, he goes and finds his teammate, Jack Harvey. He goes and and and, you know, connects with his former teammates, Will Power, and his former team boss of Tim Sendrick and and embraces all of them and it's just it was it was an incredible celebration to watch. I've never seen anything quite that emotional in motorsports. It, aside from maybe Dale Earnhardt's nineteen ninety eight win, which I don't really remember live, just you know, in, in videos and replays and stuff. So uh, it was it was an absolutely epic day. Uh, couldn't have had a better finish to a better race, and it couldn't have happened to uh, a better person, uh, in my opinion. Now, I obviously know that there are a lot of people that out, don't, out there that don't like Elio Castroves, but you can't fault that win, and you can't fault that celebration, and that he will be celebrated now as one of the greatest, uh, as one of the guys who have won four Indianapolis 500s, and he may go out and try and win another one. Uh, I don't, I don't know that he hasn't just been. Uh, rejuvenated. Uh, with that being said, Elio Casanevis is one of the casts in SRX, and I do believe they are starting this weekend, so I know this is kind of going off script a little bit, guys. Uh, are you guys looking forward to the sixth race season with SRX? Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'll definitely check it out as the year goes on. Um, I'm not sure what to expect, so I just have to wait and see. Um, yeah, I'm I'm super stoked for it. I mean, I think partially just because I think it is a new racing series, and I'm kind of intrigued by that um, and eager to see what kind of product they put on the track. Um, but also for the names that are in it. I mean, you look at Elio Castroneves, you look at Ken Schrader, some of the all-stars in racing. I mean, I think this is my generation's IROC, or what could turn into it. Um, I like the mix of tracks, the mix of drivers. I like the cars, I think, look super cool, and they're all that kind of base color with the different colors on the car, kind of like the IROC. So I'm super stoked for it. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to have an interesting format. It's going to have a, an eclectic group of drivers. Some people are saying uh, that this is the geriatric league. I don't necessarily agree with that. Most of these guys are still racing, um, aside from some. I'm a little bit disappointed we don't get to see Mark Weber this year. Hopefully he'll be back next year. I can't wait to see what happens with the Slinger Nationals winner. Um driving in in the slinger event later on this year and um I'm, I'm just looking forward to its its growth i don't necessarily think that this is a direct competition with nascar anyone saying that i think um you're kind of blowing this way out of proportion it's just another racing series that we should want to do well um and alan Beswick's is going to be commentating so there's there's just what's not to like about that um moving on we've also got Baku, Azerbaijan, GP coming up. I think we'll all be looking forward to that. Always putting up a great um, race, despite the fact that everyone thought it was going to be a really terrible street circuit going into it. So we'll be looking forward to that this weekend. Uh, but we'll be road course racing as well in NASCAR as the Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course will be hosting the Xfinity Series and Sonoma will be hosting the Cup Series as well as ARCA and ARCA West. Uh, respectively. So are you guys looking forward to this weekend of yet another road course race? Oh yeah. What am I not? I love Sonoma. It's a track where I think 
you race the racetrack more than you race everybody else. It's a little bit different than Watkins Glen or the Roval in that regard. So it's really neat to see the drivers have to really baby the car around the track and make sure that they keep the rear tires on. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Sonoma has always been kind of one of my favorite tracks, even before the whole road course boom that we kind of see. Um, and Mid-Ohio always puts on a really good show for the Xfinity cars. I do want to want to comment on the SRX one more time, Nate. They don't start till June 12th, so it's not this upcoming weekend, but the one after. All right. I'll, 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 I'll probably tune in anyways. Well, I kind of missed the ball on that. I thought it was this weekend, so my apologies for that one. Um, of course, Colton, always the one that's going to be calling me out, I guess. Um, but, yeah, this weekend at Sonoma and Mid-Ohio, like Colton said, Mid-Ohio never disappoints for the Xfinity Series. It's always put on a good show. Um, whether it's been raining or whether it's been dry, it's always been pretty damn good. Stage racing, no stage racing. That circuit's just, you know, it's got that, it's got the hairpin, uh, it's got the long straightaway, and then it's got all the undulating elevation change and, and different degree corners after that. It's It's got everything that you want in a natural born road circuit. Uh, for me, Sonoma is not going to be as good as it can be. We've ran two races since their 50th anniversary on the old carousel layout. I personally am not a fan of it, so I don't think that I'll, I'll like the racing as much as I would if we were on the traditional quote-unquote NASCAR circuit that they started running in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. With that being said, I think, Nathan, it's, it's, it's time. Well, yeah, now it's time for this weekend's picks. It looks like Colton got the win last week in the 600 with Kyle Larson. I was second with Chase Elliott, who finished second. And Alex kind of had a rough go of things with Truex's wheel basically being stuck on his car and completely took him out of contention. So with all that being said, it looks like Alex is going to have the first pick for Sonoma. So who you got? Well, I went with Truex last week. It didn't work out. I'll go with Truex again because he, he totally dominates out there in wine country. So uh, maybe I won't cause them bad luck again, uh, and I'll just go and double down with Martin Truex Jr. All right. Well, if you're going that way, I'm going to have to go the other way. Um, the Gibbs cars have been really good at Sonoma the last couple of years. Um, I don't really think anybody's had anything for the Gibbs cars out there, so I'm going to have to go with the other best Gibbs car at Sonoma, and that's Kyle Busch in the 18, because when it comes to all these recent races there, it seems like, Either him or Hamlin are always close to Truex at Sonoma. And Bush in the last year was actually the only driver to finish within five seconds of him the last time they ran there. So I'm not saying he's going to win, but I think that if Truex has some sort of issue, he'll be the first one to capitalize. Man, you guys are forgetting the team that has just been dominating these past few weeks and really all season. Um, I'm going to go Mr. H. Rick Hendrick, I think Chase Elliott is going to get it done. Uh, he won at Toda. I think he's going to get it done at Sonoma. We couldn't have picked the lower hanging fruit, guys. I mean, yeah, we really did. <laughs> we picked the two. We're, best we're trying to go Sonoma for points here. The other best road racer. Well, I, all right. It's like I think these are really good picks. I know we haven't been uh, in two years now to Sonoma, so it'll be really interesting to see just how different uh, the finishing order is compared to 2019. Yeah. So. If y'all are listening this late in the podcast, um, as my usual tradition, I will do a giveaway. Um, I'm going to give away the same prize that I just tried to give away on Sharegate and then no one won. It's a Dale Earnhardt Jr. 
little beanie baby. It's red and white. It's got Dale. It's got Earnhardt Jr. on it. Um, it's super cool. Still got the tags on it. Um, I'll send that to you in a little protective case if you tweet me with the word 600. Just because I think that race was so bad, we need to keep mentioning it. So tweet at me with the number or the word 600. Uh, first person to do so will win this little Dale Jr. Beanie Baby that I've got. Yeah, and that's at uh, Cranmore Colton. And, at Cranmore Colton on Twitter, yep. And then, of course, as always, you can you can talk to us uh, at Fan Fuel Podcast One. That's capital F, capital F, capital P, and the number one tacked on the end on Twitter as well. Um, just go ahead and engage with us. Uh, we'll probably be um, expanding ourselves. Uh, maybe do some woker jokes during the middle of the week and have you guys pull that off. Um, you know, if you got anything you want to talk about uh, for us to mention on the show, just let us know. And then, if you want to join us for a recording session, we record around six p.m. EST. Usually on Wednesdays, so if you want to be a fan spotlight, just let us know and we'll have you on here too. Thanks for listening this far into the episode. As always, Colton and Nathan, appreciate you guys. And it was a wonderful conversation tonight, and we will see everyone next time. Thanks. Bye.